0: We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to today's episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. This is the season three premiere episode. And in this conversation, our featured guest is going to teach us what are the foundational elements of empowerment. We're also going to learn what are the things we need to do to move past the performative empowerment culture that exists today. And we're also going to learn how to build the confidence and and resilience necessary to overcome any obstacle. And the person that's going to guide us through this discussion is joining us today. Ashley, welcome to the show. Oh
1: my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. And we're going to kick off your new season with a lot of interesting and exciting efforts to connect empowerment
0: just as some context for those that are joining the show or listening to us ashley and i met uh, earlier this year at sherman inclusion in san diego and she's got a really powerful story that ties into the conversation that we're going to have today on empowerment and rather than me telling you that story i'm going to have ashley Tell us a little bit about the work that she's doing, the impact that she's making, and then that's going to frame the discussion that we're going to have.
1: So I'm the president and CEO of Empowering Differences, which is a intersectionally based leadership development organization. We help leaders really understand their top 10 most common differences and how to drive empowerment faster through all of those 10 differences through curated specific leadership actions that drive those measured impacts fast. And I came to this, this job and started doing the, this empowerment educational framework after working in diversity, equity, and inclusion for a bunch of years. I'm sure we'll get to that origin story soon enough. But, but no, it's really great. I love being able to help leaders. I do leadership groups. I do training. I actually host a leadership conference on a cruise ship, all of these things to kind of put people out of their normal day to day elements of where they think they should get their leadership at and who they should get their leadership from. And I really reframe that narrative to help them see the world in a different lens.
0: I appreciate you giving us a high level view. I want to dig in that area a little bit because when I hear what you're saying, you've been in the DEI space for a while. You're doing a lot of the work when it comes to leadership development. And as a passive bystander, if I'm sitting here hearing this, the question that would pop into my head if I don't know you from anybody would be, what makes your specific leadership program different than any number of other leadership programs? I would
1: probably tell them a little bit more about my research that went with my leadership program. I actually spent about eight years of research. Connected to all of the differences that we have as humans, forming a research panel by having dialogue discussions and research questions that the group went through, we were able to really center around this leadership model to make sure that it would have a lasting impact towards all the differences that we have as humans.
0: I appreciate the context there. And I want to tie in one other element of what you mentioned earlier, which was the intersectionality aspect of the work that you do. Why is that relevant to somebody that might be evaluating various leadership development programs? How does that play into the programs that you bring to market?
1: So when you look at your leadership development program, I really want you to think about two parts to this. One is who is the person who's delivering the leadership development program because if you don't always have intersectional differences represented across the person who's delivering the leadership message, it's not going to necessarily have the same resonance as it will if you look at the differences. So if you have just one one gender delivering all your leadership program, or you have just one race, you want to make sure that it goes across all the differences, because those lived experiences that those individuals have as a leadership development expert this gives them the ability to connect their own lived experiences to connect on resonance for the person who's listening on the other end. The other person on the other end doesn't have to be from that same gender or race or religion or ethnicity or age background, but it's a key element to have to make sure that you have a different roster of all the people who deliver this educational programming to make a measured impact that way. And then the other part of this is back to the actual model. You want to make sure the model has a connection to all people and that it connects back on some sort of level in relation to the differences. And it has proof points surrounding who's gone through it, who has gone through it, what are the impacts, how many people have taken this course or curriculum, and, and what are their successes? All of those two parts, I think, are the key element into mapping out who does your leadership development programming.
0: When I hear what you said out of all of that, and I take it into sort of a hypothesis that I build out of it. So even though there's a lot of focus on the things that make us different within a team structure, the way that I interpret what you're saying is this is in service of getting everybody to recognize each other's differences in service of better team dynamics, better outcomes, recognition, building common ground, those sort of things. Am I going the right direction with the why behind all of this stuff that you've been you've been working on over several years?
1: Yeah. Y- yeah, you're 100% right. It has to have that connection across the differences. And I keep using the word differences because I like that word much better. In variation to the word diversity, which tends to get people all really hot and bothered sometimes. But differences really is that, you know, there's eight billion different people on this planet. No two people are alike. And I think that if you look at how you're gonna help to grow your team or grow yourself, or grow your peers, right? Or friends or family, how you want to grow as a human, you want to make sure that you have that connection across these things that make us different. And then ultimately, what it ends up doing is it ends up bringing us together as humans to be a stronger connection on this planet. And because you have that connection, and now you've learned about what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes or somebody else's feet, right? Or somebody else's world. You're almost seeing that through their model.
0: There's a lot of stuff that you said that. That really connects with me, but it ties back into a big reason for why we founded the show. The purpose of this show is to help professionals move their careers further, faster. We have a strong DEI component to the conversation, but it's from the lens of How can we bring everybody to the same side of the table and have constructive conversations and get a better understanding of where each of us are so that we can move forward together? I'm reacting to your comment about, hey, I focus on differences versus the phrase or the word diversity, because that can be for some reason a red flag for some people, which I find weird anyways. But the intent here is. Hey, where can we establish common ground, common understanding, and then move forward together? Because if we're looking at advancing everybody's mission, everybody has an individual mission, you're more likely to achieve that mission if you collaborate across any number of different people and philosophies to move that forward, because that's actually where the impact or the outcomes are more often realized by leveraging forces and combining forces versus being an island. Sorry, that's my that's an early soapbox yeah. of no, I love it. I appreciate you sharing that what you're currently doing, but this isn't where you started. So, wind us back and tell us about how you actually got here. I
1: actually started my first career in the restaurant industry, and in the restaurant industry, I worked as a server. And I remember my first manager. He said, "If you're he said, Hey, Ashley, if you're early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. And if you're late, it's, you're unacceptable. <laughs> and I said, wow, okay. So this is my literally my first moment in learning about leadership development from a leader. And it was that moment that I was like, wow, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to learn how to be a really good leader.
0: That was your first gig in Wisconsin because that's a Vince Lombardi adaptation because <laughs> that's what he would do as the head coach of the Packers.
1: I, I think that he was, from there, but it was definitely in Florida. I remember that like it was yesterday. And then that kind of got me hooked. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to do that. And so I started doing that in the restaurant industry and I grew my, to be a general manager. And then I was a, I was a regional, I was doing training, certified training program. I would build programs for learning. And then I was managing a team of 50 people was the HR point person in the restaurant industry. As I'm sure you can imagine, if you're not hiring, then you're going to be in a really tough at some point. So I learned a lot about recruiting and retention in those early days in the restaurant industry. And then in 2008, after working 12 years, I lost my job. It was like a perfect storm of things that happened. And then that's when I had to really almost reinvent myself in many ways.
0: It's really interesting, Ashley, that you mention your stint in the restaurant sector. And especially what caught my attention is you're spending time within the talent acquisition space, within the HR space, and you referenced hiring. So the rest of restaurant sector typically can have, yeah, I don't know, 200% turnover year over year. Oh, yeah. Some, yeah. Some- there were maybe
1: 150 or below was a good target.
0: So when you think about the pace that you had to operate it, how did you build the grit to deal with that? Because most HR professionals and talent acquisition professionals and just people leaders in general build really solid connections with the people that they bring into the organization. But if you're turning them over at 200%, that's got to be grading. So tell us a little bit about how you overcame that aspect of the job, because that's got to be cool.
1: Yeah. My recipe was to make it almost like a family, and which is hard in a chain kind of style of a restaurant business. But just by having humanistic related conversations with people and actually getting to know what's important to them, you'd be amazed. And but knowing going into the conversation that you're probably not going to have that employee for very long, but treating them like they're just a part of the family is And when I say family, like I'm talking about that you actually really like this person (laughs) because I know that sometimes we can have family and it not be a good scenario.
0: Yeah. Uh, The common wisdom is if you ever hear an employer bribe their organization, we're like family here. That's a big red flag and you run the other way. Yeah.
1: But to the point of we would have an actual conversation and actually care about each other. And I really wanted to make it be known that that they were gonna go off to college. And then when they went off to college, that they were welcome to come back and work when they come home for the summer. They could come back to work during spring break. They could come back to work whenever they wanted because I wanted to be able to make it known that they were always welcome. So I think that that's part of it. And then the other thing I would say is, is it goes back to the differences that we have. Really getting to know how different everyone is in this space. One of the biggest differences that I think is impacted a lot in the restaurant retail sector is language, which being one of those top 10 most common differences. If you don't have the respect in nature to be able to at least speak four or five different words or phrases or sayings in another language, then you're not going to really build that kind of cultural respect that's necessary for them to be your employer. And so in America, Obviously, you need to be able to speak Spanish in some nature, especially in this industry, because that's going to be a lot of, of what people may speak. So I learned a lot of restaurant Spanish to be able to make that bond stronger.
0: I never really thought about the multilingual aspect of success factors in, in the retail or restaurant space. So that's that's really interesting. One of the things that you mentioned is that after this pretty long stint, in in the restaurant space, you basically had a confluence of events where you're out of work and you decided to reinvent yourself. So tell us a little bit more about what that process looked like and what that involved.
1: I was out of work and I was losing my house from the 2008 housing crisis. And I really wanted to find a new home. But what I found when I was readying myself. I really actually worked a lot on step one of my leadership model, which is know yourself. And that was all about doing research around how you've solved yourself in the world. And it really helps you to focus on building your own confidence framework. And then that is what led me to have conversations and try to and be ready to go back to work. And I went through this process of trying to find employment. And I realized that I could find employment, but it was going to be an entry level position somewhere. And I was going to have to work my way up. And that was like the ultimate red flag that I needed to have waved at me that said, Hey, if I'm going to go and work and have to work my way up in an organization again, then at least I'm going to do it and be authentic and live only one life and stop hiding who I really am. And then that's when I made the decision to to transition my gender because I just wanted to be comfortable. And if I was going, only going to be a part-time associate starting in a bank, then at least I was going to do it and be comfortable and be me. And it wasn't a big flyer for them to take a flyer on hiring someone like me because I was going to tell them all the about all the empowerment research I was doing.
0: The people that are going to catch this on YouTube, they're going to see me lapse out of my normal RBF. Make a questional, face when when you mentioned it wasn't much of a flyer. I'm thinking about the sector that you you moved into, banking and finance, right? Yeah. So even with an entry level role that you're taking on, I wouldn't think that's necessarily the environment that's going to be, quote unquote, accepting of that change or process that you're, you're undertaking. So, how did you create the space to even? do that in that space?
1: It starts with definitely looking up a little bit more about the employer that you're going to interview at. And, and so I saw that PNC Bank had a diversity and inclusion program that they had just launched that, that year. And that was one reason why I thought that, that might be a good place for me. I saw that had a program. And, all, and then the other part of this is that it all comes down to the human who's on the other side of the conversation. And I actually interviewed the, man, the hiring manager who said, yes, during the interview, she didn't say it during the interview, but I interviewed her for the book that I wrote because I wanted to have her perspective. I wanted to know what she was thinking when I walked in the door and then what she was thinking when I left that interview. And it's a microcosm of empowerment because I had to share, I had to walk in with the confidence to know that I belonged in that space. When she came to the door, her immediate first thought was when she looked at me. And now for those watching on YouTube, I have a little bit more passing privilege than I did when I first walked in the door that day, but I walked in and she, in. And her first reaction was in her mind. She didn't say this verbally, but she said it to me when we were having a dialogue about it. I said, please tell me what your honest feedback was. What did you think when you saw me? And she thought that I was a man in a dress. And that is probably the biggest fear for any trans feminine person in the world is hearing those words. And so I went from that was our first reaction to her wanting to hire me at the end. And how we got there was all through empowerment and sharing parts of my research that I had started working on in that day. And that part was the confidence, but it also was sharing information about who I am and getting and helping the other person in the conversation to learn about differences. And then it was sharing strategic information about my identity. So that way the other person can take in leadership actions necessary to drive a measured impact. And the measurement part was that I talked about the fact that there are more than 2 million transgender people who live in this country. I didn't just self-identify as me as one person. I started sharing economic impact statistics for my difference. And then I would share an economic study I would share information from the UCLA Williams Institute, and I would share information from the National LGBT Chamber of Commerce. This kind of information really started to change the dynamic of the conversations. And it was that moment that I had the conversation with her where she said, wow, okay, this is really interesting. Uh, I think you're actually way overqualified to be a teller, a part-time teller in the bank. And then I address that, that concern.
0: There's a lot of material here, but I think, I think one of the important things that I'd like you to draw out is build some additional context in terms of the era that this is happening. So these sort of conversations or experiences that you're describing even now are difficult to enter into, but this didn't happen like yesterday.
1: No, this was 2010 in Florida.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that frame of reference, because I don't want it to be undersold. The risk, maybe that's not even the right word, the risk that you took to do or say this or, or be authentic in the way that you were. Because back then, even though we've come a fair amount of distance, that was not the time where you could be open and transparent. Did you just make a pun? (laughs) Transparent. Oh, my God. No, I didn't. (laughs) I didn't. I don't think that could be undersold as as far as the era that you did this.
1: Yeah, but the thing is that when I got to that interview at PNC Bank, I had already had 40 notes. So I had a door slammed in my face. I had the cops called on me. I got trespassed from a job interview. I got to experience all the ways that I could burn and crash really fast. And I got told, oh, you don't have a job interview here today. Oh, you have the wrong address. Oh, we don't hire people like you. Please leave. Those were all some of the conversations that I had. And those all kind of shaped the way at which I was going to frame the information with enough heartfelt information around how I was going to show up and how I was going to move. I was going to address all of those things that I was going to be here in this moment. I was going to show up for work. I was going to be respectful, look respectful. Had to address all of those things plus hit him with the economic statistics.
0: I'm processing you your comment about, hey, I was told no forty some odd times and had all of these things happen. I don't understand how you navigated all that without being a bitter angry person. We don't we haven't known each other for a really long time, but you seem like a really positive and uplifting type person. And having gone through that, I could probably say I'm just going to turn into one of these I hate the world type people.
1: But this goes back to Thomas Edison, right? And learning how to invent the iridescent light bulb, right? It's how many, what, 2000, I learned how many ways not to make a light bulb. And then I learned the one way I needed to do it to make.
0: Yeah, no, Uh, that's that's fair. That, That makes sense. But you
1: have to learn something from every time you interact with someone and it doesn't go the way you wanted it to. Or you didn't get the intended outcome that you were hoping for. I walked into the first interview and I wanted to get to a yes, right? But all of those companies that said no weren't in the right space, in the right moment, and the right place for me anyway.
0: When I listen to what what you just said and apply it to one of my favorite books, which is Chop Wood, Carry Water, it's uh, it's don't obsess about the outcome. It's focus on the process and how that process is moving you towards the desired outcome. So I think uh, I think that's important. So. Really love the fact that the way that you got to your win, got to your yes, was by tying in all of the economic impact and making the business case. So you ended up getting the job, and now you're in finance and banking as a bank teller in a job that your hiring manager is saying you're potentially you're overqualified for. So how did you bridge or move through that environment? That
1: is when I just kept the pedal to the metal. In essence, I realized that in the banking finance world, you're either an ops person or you're a salesperson. And, and honestly, I, I understood both of those worlds pretty well from the restaurant industry, and I just applied them. I think that you you don't necessarily you can't necessarily teach extroverted skills to people right and if you're going to sell things to people you need to make sure that it's something you believe in so I started to learn about all the banking suites of products and then I really started to follow into the economic statistics and I would go to where the community was and I started really focusing on the LGBTQ plus community especially the transgender community so I would. Use my own money, and I would set up a booth at a transgender conference. <laughs> and they would walk through the conference, and they would see right wigs and jewelry and makeup. And then there was PNC Bank. <laughs> and then they were like, <laughs> "You would do a double take." And then they would look at me, and they were like, <gasps> "And then they would pick up my business card." <laughs> and then they were like, "Oh wow, oh, you're like one of us." <laughs> and it was like a shocking moment. In that moment. And I would work a weekend at one of those events and I would bring in like enough clients for an entire quarter of business that I had to book.
0: The- there's there's a really important call out that I want to bring attention to right there. And it's it comes up over and over in our conversations with other leaders, which is the whole concept of representation matters. You have to look like the organizationally. And before we get into the performative, non-performative element of it, at a fundamental level, you should be looking like your the communities that you serve. And we're in global communities. So what does your organization look like? And I was smiling when uh, you're telling the story about the reaction that you got. Oh, you're one of us. It's the same reaction that I have when I see somebody who looks like me. In a general sense, in a position of leadership in any organization that I happen to be checking out. It's pretty cool to at least at some level make that connection. Oh, this prob this person is likely to have a similar experience in their journey to where they are as I am. So I, I had to jump in there. Yeah,
1: it's totally okay. <laughs> and but yeah, that was that moment that I was like, oh, okay. What if I start applying this in other spaces? And then I was thinking, okay. Maybe I should be thinking like more broadly. Like, I don't have to actually just go to the LGBTQ event or the trans event. I can just go to any diversity event or any event. And I started moving myself in other spaces. And then over the course of, of the first four ye- years working in the banking industry, I had a couple different titles. I was a banker. I was a, I was a, did some business banking. And then I was a registered investment advisor. I passed the series seven and 66 exams. And, uh, and then that led me to, to becoming like, I was the top, I was in the top one, two or three revenue producing employees across the whole bank for three straight years. And then that gave me a lot of political capital in the organization. And I actually built a business plan. And I pitched this business plan around what I was doing to go around to diversity and inclusion based events in Florida. And then I could do that across the whole company. It helped that I was in the PNC Bank Employee Hall of Fame, and I actually won their performance award, which is their Hall of Fame thing that they have. And I pitched this job, and then they were like, oh my goodness, we would love to have you. And then we found a sponsor to fund it. And then I was running off as the vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion, building a program for all of our 50 some odd regional markets to have their own, almost their own diversity, equity, and inclusion around how they were going to go to market in each community where we were doing business.
0: When I listen to that journey, it's moved from having a niche focus and building that and proving out a revenue model and then expanding that out. How did you keep from getting pigeonholed into where That's great and all, Ashley, but we want you to do this sort of thing, which is your quote-unquote wheelhouse. Did you encounter it? And if you did, how did you get over it to make a more broad-based business case? That
1: kind of really stems into why step three is to develop your strategy of my four-step leadership model. You have to have a strategy to empower all 10 of your differences. If you think that you might be getting pigeonholed, then that means you're probably your strategy is pretty basic to one of your differences or two of your differences. And what happens for those in the LGBTQ plus community is we start getting pigeonholed about gender or sexuality. And so that did happen to me. It happened to me even after I got to that position. It still happened to me because I was the national VP of DEI. I was still being asked to go and speak at the Out and Equal or at the lgbt chamber or hey we want you to come and march in the pride parade with us those were the kinds of things i was getting asked to do i wasn't being asked to go and represent other of the diverse dimensions of differences so then that's when i said you know what? i need to make sure that i put myself out in those spaces and that i actually just show up even if i'm not invited and i'll work my way into the room and i'll say hey yeah i'm here i'm representing pnc or Sometimes the worst that someone's gonna say is no, you're not allowed here.
0: There's an interesting aspect or element of your career progression during your time at PNC that I'm curious what your take would have been. So I think one of the things when I listen to you tell the story is that you've built this you called it internal capital, I think is the phrase that you use, but that was from production. You won all these accolades, and I'm we'll never know the answer, but I'm curious. How would that story have turned out if you were a middle of the road producer that still went this route? Would you have gotten as far in terms of advancing these no. issues?
1: <laughs> there was a fork in the road actually okay. earlier in my career there. So the fork was, I think it was like probably in the first like five, fifth, my fifth month or sixth month there. Uh, the head of the bank for Florida, what for retail, was in in the branch that I worked in, and she came up to me and we were having a conversation. And she was like, "I should everybody just keeps talking about you. I have to meet you, <laughs> right?" And so we had the conversation, and it, ironically, it was during the holiday season. And I want to say that I was talking about how I was going to help a nonprofit organization have this biggest turkey donation ever. So I had to go after work and find as many turkeys as I could at all the grocery stores. And so we were talking about that and she was like, oh my gosh, how can I support? And we were just having a conversation and she actually literally in that moment asked me if I wanted to enter into the leadership development program for managers and become a branch manager in the bank. And I remember it clear as day because that was what happened when I was in the restaurant industry. And they saw that I had leadership skills and they immediately wanted to suck me into that leadership model, right? So that that way I would go into the development program and then I would be a branch manager. I would get VP, I would get that VP title. But then I thought to myself, I literally went back in my lived experiences and I said, the same thing could potentially then happen to me. I'm gonna go in that pathway. It'll work out great. I'll become a branch manager probably pretty quickly. and and then I'll be a branch manager. And then what's after that? And I didn't have a lot of confidence that that was going to get me onto the national stage and then the international stage where I am right now today. But that was my thinking was that if I took that path and that was going to potentially limit how, how I would have had a lot more layers of people. Retail banks have lots of layers of people you go from branch to regional to super regional to the state, then, you know, it's like literally there's 10 layers of management levels to get to the top. And I literally said you know what, I'm going to go, I'm just going to focus on being an individual contributor for right now. I'm going to, I'm going to continue to do that. And that way I'm going to gain that capital that way. And I'm going to see it. I'm going to try it this way because I want to see what happens at the end of the day.
0: There's a really interesting aspect of what you just said that ties me back to a conversation that I had recently with Chris Williams. Chris Williams is, uh, he's all over the place, but you can primarily find him on TikTok. But he's, he is a former VP of HR for Microsoft. And like half of the technologies that you're working with, if it's from Microsoft, he probably led the teams that actually built those. And one of the things that he said is that if you want to build a high-performing organization, or even be a high performer for yourself, one of the most significant predictors of success is having a clear and compelling vision for what you want to accomplish and having that define every decision that you make, no matter how small or large it might be, you tie it back to the vision. And that's what struck me about the story that you just walked us through when you had that fork in the road. So it's great stuff how all of this connects together. And I think if we're advising professionals of any sort, even as you're going through your career navigation, define your vision as early as possible and you can modify it as you go, but that vision is gonna inform what decision you should make because you can always tie it back to that question that you asked. If I do this, what's next? And if you can't answer what's next in service of your vision, then you have a problem. I wanna push this forward. So you've gotten to the VP level at PNC. You're doing a lot of work in the the D&I space. You're starting to branch out across all the dimensions of DEI versus just a small segment, which is sometimes the direction that you were pushed into. What happened after?
1: So I, I finished all of the research that I was doing on empowerment, and I protected my intellectual property by putting a copyright on it. And, and then I went to market and I started publishing that. And so they knew that I had my own company and I, I had a, it was more of a side hustle, in essence. I would show up and share my story at companies, and and go from there. And then I would do some trainings. And then I realized that there was a larger play regarding my research, and that it was not just a book, but it could be a workbook, and it could be a learning e, and it could be a, co- a leadership-led cohort, and it could be a, an online technology to help people understand how to drive empowerment faster. And it could be me hosting conferences and events. And all of those things came to head at the end of 2021. And then I took a look at my at my financial results as 2021 was coming to an end. And then that's when I realized that I was earning more with my company than I was working at PNC Bank. And, and so in that moment, I was like, okay, I guess I've seen the writing on the wall. I'm only working 15 hours for my company and I'm absolutely giving everything In my heart, compassion, mind, to PNC Bank for lots of hours, way more than the forty, and especially navigating through the some of the hardest two years I've ever seen in the DEI space, 2020 and 2021, literally having to have conversations with people who who didn't even know what racist meant, and helping people understand that there was more to equity than pay. You name it.
0: You were very intentional. And I didn't connect the dots until just now where I'm looking at the timelines. You had an LLC or a business that was set up that was concurrent with your banking career. And I think there's an important thread I want to pull there. So if you're thinking about a general career navigation perspective, why were you intentional about setting up those two streams in, in service of a broader vision that you had for yourself? And how is that relatable to an average professional that is working through their career right now?
1: Because everyone has your own personal brand and your personal brand, is everything that you're known for. When someone wants to look, potentially hire you, they're going to look you up on Google, right? They're going to want to see what articles have you contributed towards? What publications are you in? What are your what is your expert? If you're really an expert on leadership, right? Where are you at? Are you in Forbes? Are you in Bloomberg Business Week? Are you in these places? Because if you are, then you need to have your own brand and you need to make sure that you're managing that appropriately at the same time. And so for me, the brand started with just my website. I had AshleyBrunnage.com and I bought that. Everyone should have your own website with your own name. So people can find you and you have a digital print of your brand. And so like my, my bio sits on that website and it's just there. And then obviously now it redirects people to empoweringdifferences.com. But that was, I actually bought empoweringdifferences.com like 10 years ago. I didn't have hardly anything on it. It was literally, which is linked to Brunnage.com until I was ready. So you have to be thinking about back to that fork in the road. The fork is always going to be there. You're going to always have lots of different paths that you can take as a leader. You just need to make sure that you don't burn the it. I love my, my time at PNC Bank, and, and I hope that if I wanted to go back there, that maybe I could. But I could certainly go back into the DEI space. I get asked a lot about DEI positions in corporations, especially since I ran a major program at a major corporation, 60,000 employees. We're all touched in some way by the program that I ran it's you have to make sure that you're always managing your brand
0: the you've said so many things that are interesting in this conversation and I appreciate you sharing that so openly but there's one you're going to laugh when I say this there's an element of your story that I tie to how you play poker your best <laughs> just buckle up I'm going somewhere with this and I so, play poker okay oh great <laughs> then you know the concept of being pot committed. You never want to get into a position where you're pot committed on a single path unless you're absolutely dead on sure that you have the best hand. The reason why it connected that way to me is it's one of the conversations that I regularly have with with people who are coming up as younger professionals or even my peers and leaders is that you never want to put all of your eggs in one basket. That's another cliche, but it's the same thing as pot committed. If you are really committed to looking at your, at yourself and your career as you're the CEO of your business, what does a CEO do? A CEO looks at multiple revenue streams that they can generate for themselves as a product so that if one goes away, you're never left with that scenario. It's like, holy crap, what am I going to do now? Like Everything that I poured myself into, you, you were spending 60, 70 hours working on your W-2 job. And you're looking at the balance sheet at the end of the year and you're like, what do I really want to do and what do I enjoy doing and what's the payoff and and all of these things. So there's a poker component of being pot committed that came to me right away when you mentioned it. And I think that's phenomenal advice to anybody that's looking at how do you navigate a career. You have a lot of different options.
1: And I would add to While you're on that career journey, also use the poker analogy of pot committed, because in order to know if you're pot committed, you have to be looking at the pot and counting how much is in the pot. And that means that every time someone puts money in the pot, you should be able to look at it and know exactly how many chips are there and approximately how much money is in that pot. And then you should be able to process a percentage number in relation to what you have left of capital. How much capital are you holding onto your own hand and in every moment that you move about this world? So if that's in my own company, right? So when I signed a contract to do a conference on a cruise ship, I knew what the overall impact was. There was a $110,000 commitment. I knew that was the end goal. And so I said, okay, I can pull back. I know what the actual full commitment is. Look, I can lower the count. I can lessen the impact. But I know how much money I'm committed to doing. Yeah. So monetary part of what you do to grow yourself and your company, the company you work for, you should do this even as an HR professional in the company you work for. Oftentimes as HR professionals, we tend to not think about us as being the monetary instrument for the organization, but you really are the mo- one of the most monetary portions of the company you can have a major impact right on the retention, the recruiting, right? How much does it cost to bring someone? You have to know these number of pieces because that's where the empowering data lives. That's where the power number and empowerment lives.
0: The way that I understand what you just described when we're and we're going all out on the poker references here is that when you're looking at the pot. No, we're
1: going all in.
0: That too. We're going all in. But <laughs> The way that it connected with me is that not only do you have to know what's in the pot, you have to know how much of that pot are you responsible for? Like how much of that did you drive? How much? And you need to know those numbers because if you're driving your career forward, you need to say, hey, I want this because I've actually done this and this. And it's related to this much in terms of business impact, which is what you did to get the job in the first place in your own story. Like everybody needs to be equipped that way. I want to wind this back really quickly to one of the other points that came out during our conversation, which was when we're talking about personal brand, there are people that are going to be watching and listening to this saying, I'm a two or three year experienced person. What kind of brand do I have? And I think it's important to call out that every person has something of value to somebody else. So you just need to tap into, okay, I'm three years into my career what's the person that's just starting out need to know that I can actually share with them and potentially monetize that as part of my effort. So you don't ever think that, oh, I'm just because my title is this, I don't really have anything of value to offer.
1: Or it could literally be your first day on the job or the first day in the organization. Guess what? You have a perspective that's highly valued. You have literally the outsider's perspective, or you have someone who's on the first day's perspective.
0: I know that throughout the conversation, we've been walking through your story and all of the different turns and pivots that have happened in your story. And we've talked about empowerment in general and some of the things that people need to pay attention to. If I'm looking at it from an organizational perspective, and I want to create an inclusive organization, an empowered organization. What are the things that I need to do from a framework perspective and an execution perspective to make that real versus performative? Yeah. I
1: think it comes down to really having a better foundational knowledge level for all your employees on the three parts of empowerment. And I'm hinting at them throughout our conversation but the authority is of course all the things that give those employees confidence to exist in this world those are where the emotional ties to empowerment live person to show up even though they don't feel well or to to put power through on a day that they don't really want to be there they have competing priorities That person does that because they are really emotionally tied to the organization. It produces more emotionally intelligent employees who really understand their authority impact on an organization. And then the power portion of empowerment is all of those measured non-performative, right? The super impact number database, right? It was me talking about the more than 2 million, or if I was going to talk about the one point seven trillion dollar buying power of the lgbt business community or it's me talking about the more than three million dollars in revenue that i was producing every single year in new business development those are the those are the performance nature items that all have some sort of unit of measure the unit of measure is usually some sort of numbered track metric if you don't combine both of those the impact of the emotional side of why you're here and how you're going to do your work and and all of those things. And then also combine that power element, the authority and power has to also be connected to people. So that way people know that this is part of the organization's impact. Oftentimes you will hear or we'll see the advertisement campaign that says, Oh, come work here because we empower our employees to grow their career. But at the end of the day, that statement alone on its own from a corporation doesn't involve people. And it doesn't necessarily involve any sort of metric that is power driven. they might be trying to hit at your authority. To he- so you hear that you can grow in your career at that company, but it doesn't include all three. So it really should not have the word power into it have to be able to combine all three elements. So an employee could go on an ad and say, come and work here because I worked here for three, four years and I grew in my career from part-time associate to become the national vice president of DEI. And that's why I felt like I was empowered to, to grow in my career. I could say that could be an ad.
0: When I think about authority and power, I look at it slightly differently. If we're trying to make DEI or any element of diversity or empowerment real and versus not performative, you have to have buy-in but not only just buy-in, you have to have people that actually live what you're talking about at the highest levels of the organization. Tell me a little bit more about how this model plays into getting your executive and senior leaders to live what they're talking about as a function of advancing DEI in general, but empowerment in particular.
1: Yeah, that comes down to the differences. And that's where the differences because it's empowering differences. So then the differences assessment that I put a leader through helps them to recognize whether they have privilege or disprivilege in relation to the 10 differences. And then that's where if they see that they do have a privilege or they see they have disprivilege, those are the items that they should be focusing on first. And then that's how they drive the empowerment faster is through those leadership actions and the four empowerment steps. So the four empowerment steps also then connect through the empowerment. So step one is to know yourself. And that's where you'll learn the emotional intelligence necessary to execute what you feel empowerment is, and how you connect with it, and then how you connect it to other humans. And then step two is to know others. And that's where you learn about the differences. So as a senior leader in an organization, you have to be able to say, okay, I don't know a lot about this community, I need to go and learn, I need to actually show up at their event. This is why you have employee resource groups. You have them so that way the people who are not from that difference can show up and actually learn about that community. The first employee resource group that I ever joined was the Asian Pacific Islander employee group at PNC. I showed up there because I really wanted to learn more about that community and that culture because it was the one that I knew the least about. And so that's how you actually grow as a leader is you can learn about the differences. And then step three is to develop your strategy. You develop your strategy for all 10 of your differences, not just one of them. So you even have to have, so for white male executive leaders who are cisgender and straight, you also have to learn about and build a strategy for race, sexuality, even if those terms or those differences make you uncomfortable, you need a strategy around how you're going to drive empowerment through differences for each of them. And then the fourth and final step is those empowering actions, as I call them. And then those are the actions that you do based on your differences. So whichever differences that you have that that need the most empowerment for self, for you as an individual contributor, then those are the ones you should focus on driving empowerment faster through. And if you're the leader, then you need to make sure that you're empowering the other people in the organization.
0: Just those two things that you, or two elements that you just mentioned, could be a show in and of itself. And breaking news. If you want to dive into the details, I'm sure Ashley is available for hire to help you get through all of that. So I'm just throwing a plug in there for you. This has been an awesome conversation, Ashley. I appreciate you sharing all of that insight. Before we wind everything down, if you take everything that we've t- talked about and you're framing it in terms of key lessons or key things that people listening and watching are going to need to walk away from? What would two or three of those most important takeaways be?
1: I think that the biggest thing is be cognizant of where you are on on, on this journey. Take stock, right? We said to take note of what's in the pot, okay? okay? Back to the poker reference. You should know how many chips you have left in this journey, of where you are, how committed you are to the organization. All of those things drive into you as a leader that connects back to the differences it connects to the empowering actions that you do all of this requires you to look at this stuff very holistically like literally thinking about step one know yourself have to do that holistic evaluation of where you are on this journey
0: great stuff ashley Last thing before we sign off, where can people find you?
1: Yeah, so definitely go to empoweringdifferences.com. That's where all of your empowerment meets are there. And then if you want to connect with me on social media, I'm at Ashley, A-S-H-L-E-Y-T, Brundage, B-R-U-N-D-A-G-E. And you can find me on any and all of the social media platforms using that. And then you can also connect with my company, Empowering Diff. On social media, because differences is just too long apparently. For-
0: I appreciate uh, you hanging out with us and and sharing your story and also the critical takeaways and lessons that, that came out of your journey. I definitely hope that you share this out with your friends. When it comes to a cascading leadership, our mission as a show is to help people move their careers further faster. So definitely listen to the show, subscribe and follow on all of your favorite podcast platforms. You can find us on YouTube, we're on TikTok, we're on LinkedIn, that's the main channel that we're on. Tell a friend because one of the things that we're looking to do is is aggressively grow the, the listenership and we've had a great first couple of seasons. This is the kickoff to season three and we will have a lot more interesting conversations coming up on future episodes of cascading leadership. Thank you for listening to this episode of cascading leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.